Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. Right now, the most important thing is to make sure that kids are getting food because the pandemic has certainly exacerbated food security for many children. I'm your host, Alan Weil. There's a very close relationship between food production and environmental health. Growing food, raising animals, these things consume a large amount of land and water. They use fertilizers and pesticides, and they produce a tremendous amount of waste. An estimated one-third of global greenhouse gas emissions are related to food production and distribution. So in addition to the direct effects of diet, these environmental factors affect our health. Today, we're going to talk about the relationship between one of the largest federal food programs and the environment. That's the National School Lunch Program, which feeds more than 30 million school children daily. And it directly influences U.S. food production and consumption with significant implications for our environment. I'm joined by Mary Catherine Poole, a PhD student in population health sciences in the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Poole and colleagues published a paper in our December 2020 issue, which was devoted to climate and health. Her paper examines the role of the National School Lunch Program in promoting or harming environmental health. Mary Catherine Poole, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. It's a pleasure to have you join us. Let's jump right into the content here. Let's start with the background. Uh, 30 million lunches, that's a lot of food, but we're a country of more than 300 million people. How is it that the National School Lunch Program has such a large effect on food production given its size? Yeah, so I think when we think about food systems and climate change, we often think about what are changes that individuals can make in their own diets that can reduce the negative environmental impacts of their food choices. But I think there's a unique opportunity to rethink wide-reaching food policies and programs um, that serve a lot of food to children and families um, every day. So the National School Lunch Program, as you mentioned, serves 30 million children, which is a lot of, a large volume of food each school day. So there are many opportunities along the food chain from where the food is purchased to how it's transported to how it's packaged and prepared. And then also the food waste to think about, are there ways that we can make sustainable changes to a program like this that would have a large impact? So I gather that the food producers sort of take a lot of their signals from this program. If there's a certain demand for certain items because 30 million kids are eating them, they can actually change their practices and behaviors so that they can participate in the program? Yes, that's a, a good point. Perhaps the, uh, the best example of this is in 2010, the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act was passed to improve the nutrition standards for the National School Lunch Program. And these standards have drastically improved diet quality for millions of children. And in response to that, the nutrition standards for meals included certain requirements for sugar content and sodium content to improve nutrition quality. And we saw a direct response from food suppliers 
uh, who reformulated their products to make them eligible for sale in school meals. So I think the school food environment has a lot of power in shaping what kinds of foods they want to see provided to children. You know, in healthcare, we talk a lot about Medicare being able to set standards for the whole healthcare system, even though it's only one payer, but it's so big. So it sounds like in food, the school lunch program sort of plays a little bit of that role. It's a big player and people look to it for guidance. You compare the school lunch program to the Eat Lancet Healthy Reference Diet. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Sure. So the Eat Lancet Healthy Reference Diet was uh, developed by a group known as the Eat Lancet Commission. And this is a global team of 37 experts from nutrition and climate change and agricultural sciences. And they collaborated over a long process to look at what are, what's the existing scientific evidence across our different sectors for what, what types of food uh, and dietary patterns promote both nutrition, but also keep our global food system within a safe operating space for preventing climate change and protecting the environment. So the commission came out with a set of recommendations that promotes primarily plant-based foods. So a lot of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, plant-based proteins like legumes, uh, nuts and seeds. And then it recommends seafood and poultry in moderation, and then recommends little to no uh, red meat and highly processed foods. If I'm just to understand how this came together and compare it to our thinking about the school lunch program, that's really based on diet alone, whereas this was looking at diet and climate and environment. Is that sort of the way to contrast the thinking behind these two different standards? Correct, yes. I think traditionally nutrition guidance was developed primarily on impacts on health. And this guidance specifically incorporates how will it not only impact human health, but how will it also impact the environment? So certain foods that are discouraged through the Eat Lancet recommendations are possibly discouraged for the nutrition reasons, but also for either the land use or the greenhouse gas emissions that they produce. Okay, so with that background, you in your paper did this analysis of looking at the actual lunches served in American schools and compared them to this uh, healthy reference diet. I know you found a lot, but why don't you tell us some of the top line findings to start with? Sure. So we, as you said, we looked at the healthy reference diet and basically uh, estimated what a, a lunch would look like under these guidelines. That would be a comparable size lunch to the average school lunch that is served today. And we looked across 18 food categories that are outlined in the Eat Lancet diet and looked for the major differences. So the, I think the most striking differences that we found were the amount of dairy, the amount of red and processed meat, and then whole grains and starchy vegetables. So the the red meat and the dairy differences in particular are interesting to think about because those are two, two types of foods that are associated with pretty significant impacts on our environment. And what are those impacts? 
So um, for red meat production, the impacts on uh, the environment are substantial in terms of the production that goes into producing red meat. Um, it's one of the known largest contributors to, um, to harmful emissions in the environment. And then I think the Eat Lancet Commission particularly emphasizes little to no meat, uh, red meat consumption because there's a substantial body of evidence from the nutrition literature that shows it is associated with increased risk of diet-related disease. And then from the perspective of dairy, uh, that's another one that has documented environmental impacts. And I think that the interesting thing to also consider in the context of school lunches is that uh, about a third of milk in a school lunch is typically wasted. Uh, there is actually an interesting study from a few years ago that looked at milk waste for school breakfast alone and found that a quarter million dollars for this one school district was wasted because of milk being thrown away. So I think that's definitely an area when thinking about potential areas for intervention um, could be a really interesting topic to pursue. Great. Well, let's take a quick break here and we'll be right back. Before hitting the floors of Congress, health policy begins in the pages of Health Affairs. Stay up to date with the latest research and insights by subscribing to the leading peer-reviewed health policy journal today. As a nonpartisan forum, Health Affairs addresses today's leading issues in healthcare. Look at the articles from our October issue. Janet Curry explains why the U.S. underinvests in child health, while Dolores Acevedo-Garcia explores community-level health equity opportunity gaps. By subscribing, not only do you have access to more than 30 years of health affairs back catalog, but also access to a head of print articles. Subscribe by visiting our website at www.healthaffairs.org. And we're back with Mary Catherine Poole talking about the National School Lunch Program and its implications for environmental health. Uh, we've been talking about what's in the typical school lunch in the United States Cost is a major consideration here. I'm really struck when I read your paper that these meals have to be prepared for like less than $4 per meal. Is the more planet-healthy diet more expensive? That's a great question. Um, we attempted to explore that as a secondary outcome for our study. The challenge in answering that question is that when you see the average cost of a school lunch being $3.81, that represents not only the, the cost of food, but also the other direct and indirect costs, um, which we, we were unable to really look holistically with the data we had of, about the true cost that would, and the potential change in cost that would happen from switching to a more sustainable school lunch. Um, however, what we did utilize some existing cost data from the USDA to consider what if we did modify an average school lunch to better align with Eat Lancet recommendations. And our analysis suggested that it could potentially be cost savings, which that would be really encouraging to, to find you know, cost neutral ways or cost savings ways to reduce the burden of, of cost on making such changes. You know, earlier you talked about dairy being thrown away, but when you start talking about other elements of this diet, 
there is a question on every parent's mind, which is, will the children actually eat the healthier foods? What do we know about that? Yes. Uh, I think when talking about school lunches and any kind of changes to them, I think incorporating the the student voices is so important because ultimately they're the the end user of of these meals. There was, in response to the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act changes to the nutrition standards, there was a lot of uh, media attention and, and comments about kids either not liking the new lunches or there being more waste. And we've actually found um, now that there's been several years of study on the revised meals that school lunch waste has not changed from before to after the revisions. And we've actually seen some substantial improvements in uh, both diet quality and increased consumption for some of the healthier foods like fruits and vegetables and, um, and whole grains. So I think when thinking about making any additional changes to address sustainability on top of what the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act has already done, really you know, talking with students and understanding what kinds of meals they like and you know, bringing in chefs and, and, and increasing the palatability of food is such an important piece of this. So you've described a scenario where there's an alternative to what we're doing now that is better for the planet is potentially less expensive and certainly not demonstrably more expensive, seems to be acceptable if done correctly to the students who we hope to eat this diet. What are the barriers to making a change that, at least as you described, seems to have a lot of potential benefits? I first think an important thing to note is that when we first started working on this project um, over a year ago, the school food environment was very, very different because it was pre-pandemic. I think right now, the the most important thing is to make sure that kids are getting food uh, because the pandemic has certainly exacerbated food security for many children. But thinking ahead when things are in a different place, uh, I think, you know, figuring out what are the specific nutrition requirements that are also sustainable for children um, would be a first important step because we we mentioned in our paper that the Eat Lancet diet was developed uh, based on guidance for, for adults. So are there specific nutritional needs for children that would need to be considered? And then from there, I think looking at what are schools already doing. I think I've, I've read many anecdotes about school districts that are leading innovative projects around both you know, reducing school waste, having more plant-based meals. There's some school districts that do meatless Mondays. So I think learning what's already being done and then talking with schools about what they see as the potential barriers to making shifts. So I think those are important things that would would need to be addressed uh, before trying to make any changes. Yeah, so I don't know if it would stretch all the way to being willing to change diet, but I certainly think that kids at the older end of the range in school are very aware of climate concerns and they might be motivated to look at things differently if they saw an opportunity to make the world a better place. Well, let's just finish up with a little bit about how you got to play this important role in, in the analysis. Uh, what brought you to the population health sciences program that you're in? 
since I graduated from undergrad, I have worked in public health in some way. Um, most of my work, work experience is in public health practice. So I worked in a high school for two years as a health educator and actually worked with school food. And then I've, I've also had the pleasure of uh, leading local chapter of the Let's Move program. Um, so really getting to work with, with kids and uh, the people who are out on the ground implementing programs. And then through the years, I've my interest in research has grown to really think about how can we better merge practice and research to ensure that research is being translated in a way that is easy to do for practitioners and is, is going to be impactful. So I had some research experience and then decided to apply to go back to school. And um, it's been it's been an awesome experience to learn about different areas of nutrition that I previously hadn't worked on, like the growing field of planet-friendly diets. Uh, that's a great story. And what comes next in your research interests? I'm working on my dissertation proposal at this time, and uh, really the the theme across my papers is going to be looking at effective implementation of um, policies and programs for child nutrition. So really getting into how can we make sure that programs are implemented well, what are the resources needed and the barriers that are in place to make sure that children have access to, to healthy food. Well, it is the primary motivation of people coming into the research field to have a direct effect on practice. And it sounds like you've been able to take the experience you had before being a graduate student and uh, make that happen. It's not everyone who gets to work on papers that are so directly tied to policy. And uh, I'm glad you were able to do that. So it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Uh, Mary Catherine, thank you for the time talking here and the paper that we were able to publish with you and your colleagues as co-authors. Thanks for joining us on A Health Policy. Thank you so much. This has been great. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Brian Dobbs, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening. <laughs>